So I have a free gift for you. I realize that might sound a little spitchy, but legit free gift. I have a practice log which I've been using for a few years with my clients and for myself. I use it both for practicing my instrument, if I'm practicing piano or any other instruments I play, or for my workout routine. It's super simple to use and you can go download it for free at holisticpianoacademy.com. There's no catch. It's just something I've really found to be extremely beneficial in these very trying times to find some clarity and set priorities. So if there's something you'd like to avail, go to holisticpianoacademy.com. There are parrots on this recording. Yep, you heard me right, and you'll hear them parrots right as well in a bit. This session was recorded while I was in Mumbai. Seemed to be rather insistent on being served. The very gentle and compassionate manner in which you'll hear Vivian speak on this podcast is one that'll leave your heart pressed to guess the mammoth stature of some of the collaborators she rubs shoulders with. I met Vivian on a Zoom call uh, from the FLS Mastery Institute. Um, that's a whole different story altogether, which I hope to get into in future podcasts. Fingers crossed. And I don't want to waste too much of your time by getting into details because this conversation is one long, deep and very fulfilling one which touches upon all the topics that I consider the most important under the current zeitgeist. So without much further ado, let's do this. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Okay, Vivian, welcome. Nice to see you. Uh, hear you. <laughs> Cheers. Um, I see. I still see you, actually. So, oh, let me turn yeah, myself yeah, off. Yeah. So, how are you doing today? Where are you? I'm good. I'm in the Netherlands, still in Leiden. We're uh, planning to go back in August to mm. New York. Sweet. Finally. It's been a while. How long have you been in the Netherlands now? Well, I'm from here, and when the, uh, Corona started, um, I was here for a show, and then the borders closed, and I couldn't go back to New York, but all my stuff was there, and uh, it was a little stressful, but um, we managed. Um, the Netherlands has a, is, is, it's a great country. It has, like, cheese and tulips and all that. I know. I, I love the Netherlands. I, I have been there often in the past. You're, you're mostly in Germany, are you? I am. I'm German. Uh, I spend a lot of time in um, London and uh, India as well, because I have roots there too. I grew up in different places. Beautiful. I usually start off um, uh, doing a bit of a walk down memory lane with my guests. Um, in a lot of cases, they'll be friends and colleagues who have had the privilege of meeting in person. In our case, uh, that's not been a reality yet. Uh, hopefully you'll change that someday. But uh, I didn't meet you on a Zoom meeting I found myself on for the Effortless Mastery Institute. That's right. Um, and it was uh, fascinating to uh, be part of that, to start off with, for a whole bunch of personal reasons. Um, but um, I, I want to um, try and see... Um, how best to kind of navigate this conversation. How about we start from the very beginning? Like, where did your musical journey start? Is that a 
too cliched a question. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. Um, you get the doll the time. But um, yeah, I, I grew up in, in uh, the Netherlands and my parents both, they, they loved music and they were listening to records. And my mom was a choir director of the uh, church choir. And um, they were like, oh, you want a hobby? And I was super small. So I was like, what is a hobby? Well, you know, something you do for fun. And I was like, well, I go to school. I play outside. No, no, no. You could play maybe an instrument. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, it, I, I chose the piano and I played a lot of it. I was just banging on it as a two-year-old, as a three-year-old. And then later on, I, I started conceptual lessons and they, they taught me how to play notes in school and skills and and I was composing my own things as a five-year-old like just wow baby things um but having fun with it and uh yeah then they put me on on uh singing lessons as well because I loved it and then I was the pianist of the children's choir and uh yeah it just evolved from there and but I was also doing sports and just whatever people do as as a kid um but my parents they, they don't work in music they just love it very much and uh in the netherlands there's not a lot of um formal jazz education really um but i found out that i was really into it um and I, it, it was still a search i think when when i finally got to study at the conservatory then it started for me it, it really became jazz um, before that, it was just fun, um, but there was no formal training for that. I was playing a lot of classical piano and uh, singing musical, like Broadway type of things and uh, composing my own stuff. Wow. Um, so after high school, I chose to do a double major at two universities at the same time. And uh, it was possible to to go um, to the Conservatory of The Hague. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time as the University of Leiden, and where I studied uh, psychology, so I was combining those two and traveling from Leiden to The Hague to my parents in Zoetermeer, uh, which is very close, and wow. uh, it was a lot of stuff and hours. And and then I started directing choirs, which I really liked, and. Um, yeah, it just evolves from there. One um, aspect I can't help but um, find very unique, well, not unique, but it really caught my attention is, um, before we go into your career as a singer too, you have a master's degree in clinical psychology. It's only later that I noticed that on your bio. Um, yeah. Um, that is awesome to start off with. Um how how did that happen? And how have you been combining these two modalities uh, over the years? Yeah, well, I, I really, I was really interested in it. Working with people, I, I really love working with groups and one-on-one and, -on -one and education. I, I like those things. So when, when asked, what do you want to study? I was like, well, I want to do more music, but I also want to do a formal training of a you know, at the university. So I, I registered for both conservatory and university. And um, I, I did three years of 
or no, it was four years of bachelor in my time. And then I did my master's in clinical psychology, where I also um, started working as a therapist in a private practice of somebody else. Wow. So um, then I was in the daytime, I was working as a psychologist, just, you know, people with burnout and anxiety and different type of issues uh, would show up at this private practice and I'd help them uh, with different cognitive behavioral techniques or um, we, we even did like Rorschach and, and like drawing test so they they get more insight in their issue and the personality and i did couples treatment it was whatever would come by in this practice it was slightly loose Mm -hmm. um, because it's a private practice so whoever shows up (laughs) shows up right Uh, lots of burnouts because at that time it was um it was like a financial crisis 2010 Right, yeah. right. And then in the nice in the evenings, I, I had five choirs as a conductor, and uh, I was singing gigs in weddings and clubs and doing like jazz standard type of gigs, and also my own songs, like songwriter jazz, I would say with a trio or a quartet. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know, but I was able to combine it all um, up to uh, until I went to Boston to study more. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, that was in 2012. So you were basically um, balancing two modalities. You were working as a psychologist in, during the day and, and a musician yeah. in the evening, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, did you know a lot of other artists who were doing anything similar at the time? Or did you find yourself to be rather alone in that specific, unique situation? Um. Well, I didn't know, no, yeah, not a lot of people were combining stuff. It's not normal in my country in general to to do to, to wear multiple hats. Um, right. But it was fine, I guess. And but you know, if I was a, at a hairdresser and they would ask me, "Oh, what do you do?" I, I would just choose one <laughs> to not make them too confused. Um, and and also it was it's, sometimes it was tough that they would say oh you have psychology as a backup, but I, I didn't really see it that way because I, I both love it and I both do it like hundred mm-hmm. um, percent. Do you think that's changed that attitude towards looking at them as completely different practices as opposed to complementary practices? I, I don't. I'm afraid it's it's not changed so much in well at least in the Netherlands. But going to America when I when when I got to Boston to study uh, more singing, mm-hmm. um, it was like, wow, you do all these things, and th- they were excited about that. Um, so I finally, um, yeah, I, I finally found like uh, a group of friends and people that that are, yeah, encouraging. A like-minded community. Right. Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? Very much, yeah. And my pa- I mean, I'm lucky my parents, they get it. They they love it. They trust me in, in what I want to do. And um, yeah, so that's... that's um, but yeah, there's a lot of people that just don't get it. Mm. I guess that's fine, you know. So... Um, 
I'm curious when you come across these people who don't get it, what, how do you cope? Oh, um, well, I used to try to explain what, what, a, what a passion could be and how you want to, I, I always want to just strive for changing the world and making it a better. I mean, as cliche as that sounds. Not to me. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna have an impact, and um, be good and be nice. And um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes that does not work. Um, but yeah, I, I, I try, and I think that's the only thing you could do. You could stick to yourself and and figure out what you wanna do, and just believe in it authenticity right um, you, you were um, you moved to Boston on a scholarship you want to tell us a little about that story yeah when I found out well it, it started a few years before that um, in 2007 I went for the fun of it to a summer program in Italy it's a festival they have in Perugia and the festival is called Umbria Jazz um, so two weeks they have like famous artists performing in, in the evenings and in the daytime Berkeley College of Music goes there to teach in the daytime so I was still I was like super young in 2007 and uh, I just had so much fun just yeah. working with all these American teachers from Berkeley and uh like showing them my songs and what do you think and jamming in the nights and going to all these uh, concerts it, it was and I mean the weather is great the food is great the Italian people are the best mm. uh, <laughs> so I was just having fun and but then at the end of it um, I got a scholarship from Berkeley because they award some people from that workshop they are like you should come to Berkeley that and is uh, like such a dream country go to Italy have a fantastic time and bizarre. come out of this and I did not <laughs> intend it I, I didn't intend it because I, I was you know I was still studying psychology and music so I had a lot to do uh, I was fine um, wow. but then I had the scholarship. I was like, hmm, maybe I should go to America. There's a lot of jazz in America. It might make sense. But it still took from 2007 till 2012 for me to actually be able to go because I, I, I first finished uh, all my degrees and then I worked uh, for a little bit hmm. uh, for two years. To, uh, and then I was like, well, I should still take that opportunity and go. So I called Berkeley in, I think, 2000, whatever, 11 can I still go? And they were like, yeah, of course. Um, it's still a lot of money. Mm. American universities, they, they, it's different than Europe. Indeed. Um, so in, yeah, in order to, to fund it, um, I, I, I couldn't just pay for that myself or ask my parents. It, it didn't work like that. So I was like, oh, well, let's do some um, fundraising concerts. And I, I told everybody to buy my album. And I think I sold 5,000 albums by hand. Wow. That's <laughs> to raise awesome. money to go to Boston. Um, and, and I got um, several Dutch scholarships and uh, one American, which is called Fulbright. Yes. Um, and I, I really love that community. I've met so many Fulbrighters. And by now, um, 
Um, I still, I, I'm still associated. I'm in the board of Fulbright Alumni New York, and mm-hmm. we organize events. And everybody you meet, it's different professions. Um, so it works two ways. Uh, Senator Fulbright, in um, just after the war, um, was like, we should create uh, intercultural understanding between continents. So his mission as a senator was to uh, create world peace through better understanding of you know p- people in different countries and fields and exchange. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he fu- funded this scholarship program where they put a bunch of Europeans um, on a boat <laughs> and wow. they would learn English on the water and then go to Yale or Harvard or, um, and that grew. So later on they sent Americans to the world and they sent the world to America to study and, and get that exchange. Um, and then every country chooses a couple of uh, students a year to do a PhD or a master program or research or uh, some some cultural uh, uh, study like like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in my year it was like twenty people. So it was one lawyer, one doctor, one physicist, and and me. So beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a great group of people because they wanted they actually do their selection well and they choose people that want to change something. It sounds like such a refreshing contrast to the quintessential stereotypical art, you know, path to music education, wherein you kind of find yourself, uh, well, it's great to have that like-minded community of people mm. passionate about music, but in my experience, uh, it, it, that can also go both ways, where, you know, it gets a little obsessive, wherein right. you your part sounds it's so always much me, balance. me, me. I need to be famous. It exactly. I, and and it doesn't really work. I mean, it could it could happen, but what what's next? Exactly. Um, I I think you you play music to create an experience and to share and to um, touch people, um, but it, it's it's it comes from both ways. Um, I completely agree. Yeah, and you give you give and you take and it's a balance and you share how, how early were you aware of this uh, I don't know I think it's it's. well m- my parents are very they do so much volunteer work and they always are um, they're not super religious but they're they're with the choir uh, in the church they've, they've been uh, always doing stuff with elderly people in the community. They, they do, uh, they tend like this garden and, um, yeah, I think they, 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 I mean, they never told me to do stuff. (laughs) They, they were always like, um, why do you do two things? You don't, you should not, well, not, um, they they weren't questioning my ab- ambitions. They were just questioning m- me taking care of my own peace mm-hmm. because I was always busy, busy, busy. And uh, th- they would put the brake on it f- sometimes like, oh, you do so much. Uh, you should also relax. We would still love you if you're like, uh-huh. if you would work in a supermarket, <laughs> we would still love you. You don't need to be so ambitious. And I was like, no, 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 I, I want to study and I want to meet people and I do things and uh, create events. And 
yeah, during my time at the university, I organized some festivals and um, I did a series in the uh, train stations of the Netherlands for, I think I did three years of that, where we, you know, those little waiting glass houses, waiting houses on the platforms of the train stations? Yeah, yeah. So I reorganized those to look like living rooms and then put like culture in it. So a poet or a dance or wow. a painter or and, and people would just hop in that glass house and have an experience of like 20 minutes wow. and then hop to the next glass house. And there was like a whole series in central stations, which is interesting because there's so much regulations around that, but they pulled it out. I can imagine. But, uh, and this uh, was all yeah. over the Netherlands or was it just New York Yeah, City? I moved around. Well, the first year it was just one city, uh, Leiden, where I'm, uh, where I'm still. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the years after that, it was a bunch of cities. So I, I would actually tour my program around <laughs> wow mad respect um, that sounds yeah and I, I would organize that for change because so I, I do a lot of performing but but programming and organizing stuff and having yeah thinking about what to present to people I, I really like that and wow. I organized a living room uh, student house living room festival in 2008 um, it came it was a, a it was a Dutch thing mm-hmm. um so a lot of student towns had it and but in my town it's a big university town so it did not exist yet in 2008 i i started it uh, with the same concept as the national program um, gotcha. and it's still going on every year it's a different student group that organizes it um, so wow. yeah I, I think i was so always a sustainable to, system you did establish there not just a yeah. one-off Beautiful. That's yeah. amazing. Super. Yeah, I was always trying to get people together, I guess. Beautiful. Which I guess at the end of the day is one of the core motivations behind music, right? Connection. Right. Beautiful. So inspiring. Do you um, um, do you remember your first impressions of Boston when you first moved there on the scholarship? Yeah, I, I have not. I, I did not go to Boston before, so I just hopped on the plane and I entered. <laughs> Was that your first trip to the U.S. as well? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I've I've met all these teachers in Italy um, multiple times because that was my favorite festival still. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met other musicians that that are from there or that have been there. So it's it's not like I was totally blue. But um, yeah, I I remember taking the airplane and it was middle of the night. I, I got in and... Um, yeah, I met years before that, I told, I met a guitar player. His name is Joe Cohn. Hmm. And Joe Cohn was touring with a Dutch piano player, Peter Beat. Um, and I, I met Joe. And um, Joe is fantastic. He, he, he plays the guitar and it's really amazing. Um, so I think I told him about my plans to go to Berkeley mm-hmm. and he's like I'm 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 that's I I went to Berkeley and uh he he's like my father's age and uh what? Joe is like oh that's so cool I'm gonna call my ex-wife <laughs> uh what <laughs> yeah my huh. ex-wife lives in Boston and her family and you could stay with them and I was like yeah what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should stay with them because you should have a house. Um, 
Okay. So he he, did, he actually did. And uh, wow, I stayed so cool. my first two semesters. I stayed with their wonderful family. And uh, yeah, so that was like a warm bath because they, they showed me around. It, it was very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Joe is so, is a, Joe Cohn is a very funny personality on the guitar as well. And he grew up, he's the, actually, he's the son of Al Cohn, which mm-hmm. is a very famous saxophone player. He, I mean, in the 20s and 30s, he, he they would play with uh, Dizzy and Stan and all, all these jazz people. Wow. Joe's babysitter, when, when Joe was a kid, the babysitter was Billie Holiday. So he wow. he grew up in this bizarre jazz environment. Wow. Um, so he has all these weird stories. Here. I can imagine. And he, he became my, my mentor for the first uh, years, just telling me everything. Wow, that's so awesome though. Having like landing into a completely new environment with a mentor with that kind of a background. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, I didn't plan it because I just met him in a bar in the Netherlands and he just started rambling about, and I was like, well, you're sort of the first American I, I meet wow. <laughs> in, in my field. Um, so, and he's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And if you come to, yeah, you're going to stay with my ex in Boston and then uh, you're going to just uh, stay. Uh, if, if you visit New York, you can stay uh, on the couch. Wow. Well, Shout out to Joe then. Sounds like he's had quite the yeah. role to play in your life. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. Do you, um, I mean, I look at, uh, I'm actually on your website here. I look at some of the people you've collaborated with. It is pretty mind boggling. I mean, it's like the, it reads like the who's who of the world of jazz. I mean, <laughs> um, how does that feel? I mean, looking back at uh, how you started your journey off, did you know your career's um, career was headed towards a trajectory in that manner? Did you know you're going to be collaborating with people of this caliber when you left? No. No, I, I couldn't know. I, I think it's just an attitude. If you just dive in, then it's, things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, well, if you meet a person like Joe or I don't know, Lee Connitz or Dave Liebman. You could be all like fanboy, fangirl, but you could also just talk about food or the weather or <laughs> just mm. about things you love. Yes. And then it's just a hang. And they're just people and they just want to have fun. And mm-hmm. um, well, at Berkeley, there's a bunch of them hanging around. Um, exactly. So I just, well, through, I think in my second semester, I applied for the honors track, which is uh, called the Global Jazz Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I got into the honors track. So instead of the normal ensemble, you take the Global Jazz Ensemble and gotcha. you get some extra classes in, in certain type of things and they have uh, special master classes and every week mm-hmm. they get some famous in. So I've, worked and seen I mean the, the, the artistic director of the Global Jazz Institute is, is called Danilo Perez and yeah. uh, Marco Pinotaro is the managing director and they just got 
Patitucci, Ben Street, Joe Lovano, Dave Lee, all these guys would, would just come in. History. And yeah, and they would just tell about life or about, and they would play and you would have classes with them. And it was really an amazing hang. Uh, and part of the Global Jazz Institute is is also it has this um, they want to make global change. Mm-hmm. So we did volunteer work, and there was a community service where they send us to an elderly house or to a uh, uh, yeah they they send people the these these <laughs> students musicians all over to just yeah play music. So cool. I guess that's the whole point. And we would have point. discussions about life and global change. Yeah. Um, how do you compare pedagogical approaches in music between the US and Europe? Since you've been part of both, do you see a general difference in the manner in which it's approached? I think so. Well, the, first of all, the scale, um, it's way bigger. In the conservatory in Rotterdam, um, and also in The Hague, because I did like three years of The Hague Conservatory mm-hmm. and then I did two years of Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. And I think we had like nine vocal students. Mm-hmm. And in Boston, I think there's 900. Gotcha. So it's big. Yeah. Then Berkeley obviously gets paid by the students, mm-hmm. whereas the conservatories in the Netherlands... I mean, the students pay something, but it's generally government-funded. Do you think that plays a role in the quality of education? Well, if you calculate, and Berkeley gets more money. (laughs) Especially when you have 5,000 students instead of nine, you know. Berkeley has 5,000 students. I think the conservatories, uh, maybe in in Rotterdam, is like 200 students or 150 which is already a lot, yeah. um, but if you just, yeah, if you add all these tuitions, then you don't get anywhere. But so, well, Berkeley does because they all, and then and they do a lot of fundraising because it's in the culture of America to to do fundraising and to do private funding and to support stuff that you believe in. Yes. Um, financially because then you make it a write-off and or and or yeah you pass it on so it's it's more common there than than here i guess in in europe mm-hmm. and but therefore they yeah berkeley could be you could see it as a factory they just buy whatever they want to buy and for mm-hmm. the better you know they have studios they have concert rooms they have um the most famous artists, they just buy them in to do a masterclass. Um, whereas in the Netherlands, it, it's it's a little more conservative, Calvinist, you know. Mm, yeah. They don't and they don't have that funding. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, my uh, my experiences have been somewhat similar. I went to Berkeley's partner college in Germany before they all. Um, um, went to Valencia, but before Valencia uh-huh. happened, they used to have this network. You, you probably know about this, right? Yeah, uh, right. So I went to the um, German uh, partner college at the time, and um, it's only much later, after like almost five years of studying there, I, re- 
I noticed the difference between that and conservative European education uh, because my second yes. degree was at a more somewhat more regular German university and it's now in hindsight I notice how much of a difference that makes just the numbers the finances there is an argument and maybe you could share some of your thoughts on this um, uh, it's, it's somewhat random it's not planned but uh, I'm interested in that there is a thought um, a school of thought that you perform from a from a space of more uh, focus and passion maybe if you're actually investing and paying money for your education how do you feel about that I mean especially as a psychologist do you think that actually makes a difference in the way we approach our education Mm. Well, if you buy something that's very expensive, they say you would appreciate it more. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, I would never go to whatever they, those stores are. There, there's some stores that, that that have clothing, and it's like child labor, and everybody right. knows it. Right, right. One year still, people are lining up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> people are in line to go yeah. to that store, and you know, it's like I can't. I, I don't. I like. I rather just save up yeah. and buy something I know is hundred percent. And still, exactly. I mean, still, there, there's no way to have 100% transparency. But, but still, or I, I go to a thrift store and buy something secondhand that's still like beautiful. Exactly. Um, but I think if you if you spend your money on something that's good, it will last. Mm. Not only will you take care of it yourself because you appreciate it better it, it will it's it's it, it will go further it will travel with you yeah um, i hear you though i think not everybody's able to fund education so education might be a different topic for that yeah um, yeah i get so that perspective as well accessibility exactly there should be scholarships for those that have so much talent but cannot afford it yes. because you know we have a um in our summer school that's outside of uh berkeley so we, we have now this we we launched this thing with kenny uh, mm -hmm. uh so now people can study effortless mastery um also outside of berkeley which is yeah a long dream of us to to also because we get so many requests and then we're like oh well you have to be in berkeley to um right uh, very very much on my master. radar by the way that would be a dream come true that um for me and we had we had this lady from argentina and she was everywhere i i she she, she was on the facebook she was like every form and she was sending message and she loved it and she she's but and and she really wanted to take this 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 summer school and in our argentina she makes i don't know 50 euros a week right there is no way she can afford a program we offer exactly and then the pro I mean the program we offer is way cheaper than Berkeley, obviously. Mm -hmm. But still, there's the conversion rate is. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, we we found uh, a person that accidentally we we sent a message to this this person we were in touch with um, about effortless mastery. Uh, we sent him a message like, "Hey, if you really want to contribute, then maybe you want to do a scholarship for one of our um, attendees because she she's really into it and she's in Argentina." And the the this man answered like, "Wow." My grandmother is from Argentina. I would love to fund your scholarship for wow. this person. And and it was a hit accidentally. We we did obviously we could not know. Um but Beautiful. yeah, so so we were able to offer the scholarship for uh, two people actually. Yeah. Amazing. So tell us about that. How did um when did where and when did you meet Kenny and how did you end up become director for the Effortless Mastery yeah. Institute? So during my last semester in Boston, um, they hired Kenny to just be there. <laughs> and awesome. I, I just saw his name in one of the newsletters, Kenny Werner is coming. And uh, as so I sent an email to the direct, to the uh, performance division chair, hey, wh where is he? Where can I just go? And, and they were like, oh, just go. He, he'll be in that room on that day. And <laughs> wow. they, they, they did not give him credited classes. They, he, they just gave him a room and, and time. <laughs> and he was just sitting there. And awesome. it, <laughs> there's nothing formalized. And it was my last semester. And I uh, had only had um, a few classes left for my degree. So I had a lot of time. So I was like, Kenny... I'm going to call all my friends in Berkeley and we'll just hang and jam and he, he'll lecture. And so I sort of grew a community around him Beautiful. in Berkeley. So cool. And then we started a Facebook and he was like, oh, should I have a... So I started him a YouTube channel, um, all the online stuff. I, I He hired me to do that. And then uh, Berkeley got me on... Uh, as, uh, well, during my last semester, it was uh, the student job they, they arranged. And then I graduated and, and they kept me on. So then um, slightly we grew in, uh, we grew his um, open schedule into a more more conceptualized thing so he um, started giving credited classes in effortless mastery and then a couple of years later we designed um, a minor program that is not only his classes but also uh, a yoga class we have alexander technique body mapping and tai chi wow. so you can take a whole package and then it's the effortless mastery minor at berkeley um, and we hope in the future we'll, uh, we'll, we'll design a certification program where we can educate people to also teach. Because so far by now, having worked with him for so many years, uh, I'm, I'm so far the only one that um, is able to teach this techniques about how to let the music play itself and how to get rid of this anxiety and then how to be the instrument or become the instrument that plays the instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been growing the last seven years. And I was there from the very, very beginning. And uh, it's it been fascinating. It was, I, I met him, I was like, wow, this is a combination of my passions and professions. Mm -hmm. And 
Did yeah, you know I, from earlier on, had you read the Effortless Mastery book earlier on or was this the first time you were actually being acquainted I've, I've with it? I heard about it and I, I saw him, I think I saw him a couple of years before that just for a very short lecture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I, when I saw him speech, uh, just doing his class, that was the moment where I was like, wow, we need to pass this on. Um, so many people can make a change. So well said. Um, but I, I was not per se the person that suffered a lot from the things that we are dealing with. Um, um, well, in my case, the, the thing I, I did suffer was that um, while being at the conservatory in the Netherlands, uh, I was not really allowed to be myself because mm. um, in Rotterdam, in the conservatory, they would... Um, not appreciate singer-songwriters. It, it would be strictly jazz in that department. So it, it was really one-dimensional. And I did learn a lot. Um, my freedom started when I went to Boston and just like, whatever you do, as long as you do it well. Um, so I, I got my freedom yeah, when I, when I traveled and was out of that um, and, and I'm, I mean, I get it. Europe, it, well, especially in the Netherlands, it's sort of a liberal Calvinist. I mean, Netherlands probably one of the most liberal of them all in Central Europe. Yeah, but it's it's a weird liberal because they want you to be free, mm -hmm. but they also want you to be normal. Right, yeah. Because that's... when times get rough, then you better be normal because you shouldn't you know they're they're still a little bit yeah intimately fit. sounds pretty much like germany really i i think so yeah i mean though in in germany i i get the sense that there's there's a, a little more appreciation for for arts and cultures um, yeah. because the government in the netherlands has has been forgetting it for the last 10 years um we have this prime minister uh, rutte that's yeah. his name yeah. and he's he's um yeah he doesn't like culture. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. It's um, uh, I appreciate that. It is true. I mean, Germany does spend a lot of money on its arts, and I guess um, it's good to take a minute to appreciate that. I was actually referring to the overall uh, mentality, though, towards the arts. It's still it's, it's confusing for for someone like me. I, I'm a singer-songwriter as well, uh, who started mm -hmm. off studying jazz piano primarily because, you know, at the time I was getting myself a formal education we didn't really have songwriting programs right it's only much yeah. later that they even start existing which is why i did a second degree i totally uh, feel you and even there it was just the beginnings of its journey of it. and uh, right. exactly and there was all this bureaucracy and red tape that had to be fulfilled and um I mean, I have a degree in music production and songwriting, but I'd be hard-pressed to say universities where I learned to write a song, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I'd go as far as to say I learned to write a song in spite of going to university. <laughs> well, thank God me. you did not lose it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I guess, uh, I mean, the, I don't want to sound ungrateful for the bunch of other skills uh, I managed to learn. Right, you still learn a lot. 
But exactly. I recall a guy in The Hague would say, oh, well, after you graduate, you need 10 years to find yourself back exactly. and to be established. And I was yeah. like, how am I going to pay my rent again? Yeah. <laughs> or why am I losing myself? That's not nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm spending uh, the best they, years of my life doing it. Yeah, it's an attitude. They, they, yeah. It's, so, it's kind of sad because if you see, like we're doing with Effortless Mastery, we're fixing people that fell out of love with their instrument for several reasons. Yep. Um, they did research. 90% of people that go to music schools, conservatives, 90% mentions physical or mental pain yep. at one point. Yep. So they don't feel good enough or they, they practice so much they get themselves hurt. They have exactly. to learn a gazillion new songs every week and they cannot digest anything. So they feel they suck in everything. So it's this mental process that is very rough at conservatories. Yeah. And um, next to that hurricane, there should be a path mm. of who am I? Why am I doing this? Be that child that is like, ooh, is that a piano? Or who? Is that like, a, like pling? <laughs> Be it's that happy. child and, and, and keep that child. Because, you know, as Kenny is also describing, the sun is always shining. There might be clouds in front of it, but we're not saying, oh, the sun disappeared. <laughs> There's still a sun. Exactly. And, and that's what we are drawn to. I actually wrote a song about that. Cool. Yeah, it's 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 an old um, it's an old uh, analogy actually the the whole right. cloud you know the sun never actually disappearing yeah sorry random random tangent I didn't mean to no that's you. right we want to be that artist that is the sun and we all have clouds ourselves exactly because that's just humanity and we should be okay with that and just blow those clouds away and and be that sun again because then our audience will look at us not because we do something very well but because we became the instrument mm -hmm. and that's why they want to watch us or listen to us why do you think it took a Kenny Warner to finally address this issue why do you think institutionalized forms of education have been so resistant to the mm. vulnerabilities of the human condition till then. I mean, that man, by the way, Kenny, he changed my life. His book did anyway. Beautiful. It found me exactly at the time I needed it. I was close to like really, you know, just moving on. Uh, okay. At least from the piano. I mean, at the time I was seriously contemplating just never to play piano again. And uh, that mm. book is the reason I didn't. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, um, yeah I hope to, I, I get to meet him in person someday soon. It's definitely on my bucket list. Um, but why do you think institutionalized forms of education in this part of the world have been that resistant to these vulnerabilities for the longest time? Well, the profession of music and arts in general doesn't stick to a semester or a year. But then the whole university system here in, in the Western world, you know, it's, it's accreditation. You need to be graduating in, say, four years. Yeah. <laughs> but with music, it might not work that way. 
exactly. So it's it's just the structure of society that gets into way of that flow of of how art evolves, and therefore it's there. There's a constant clash between it, you know. Then yeah. art should be funded, but then people don't go, but then people don't see it. There's this chicken or egg constantly with right. the arts, and we we. We might know, well, I know it is important, <laughs> but mm -hmm. many people don't realize it. Completely agree. Is this something that came to your notice from the very beginning as someone who had a background in psychology? Yeah, I think so. I had great teachers and not so great teachers mm -hmm. um, at the conservatories. And some were great performers, but not great educators and exactly. yeah. shit happens uh, you cannot blame they need a job too <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think I did notice but then what else do you do um, well eventually I moved I, I went to America to find more people that are similar minded I guess in, mm -hmm. in, and want to create and be inspired and I mean after studying in Boston doing all that and getting to meet Kenny I, I started working for him and then I moved to New York and well New York's famous for the American dream and everybody get, goes there and wants to mm -hmm. be the best they can Indeed. and it, it, that, it was just like a candy store what were your first impressions? Very tough, you know. Yeah. It's it's rough, it's dirty, it's smelly, and it, you have to survive. And it's hard to focus on your stuff if you have to survive. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you meet all these people and they have the same. Um, yeah, I, I, I really fell in love with, with New York. And then my husband was still in the Netherlands. Um, we met halfway through Berkeley, which was sort of inconvenient because we had to do a long distance thing mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Yeah. And it, But he was so cool. He was very chill. And after graduation, he's like, well, if you want to go to New York, I'll move from the Netherlands to New York as well. And we found him a job as a chef. Wow. At that point, it was the third best restaurant of the world. Um, and it had like three Michelin stars. And it Whoa. was super fancy. Um, but that did mean that we started off in New York and he was working 80 hours a week. Wow. And he only had a break of five minutes a day. That Jesus. was five minutes for that. In those five, in those five minutes, he would have lunch and dinner. And uh, he, it was very rough on his body and in his mind because you have to be the best every day. Mm. Um, so that was a, an experience. But after that year, we were like, what, what's next? Um, I was still working with Kenny and for Berkeley and doing different type of gigs. I was playing with, uh, yeah, cool people and... Uh, cool people is right i mean you say cool people you're being very very humble i mean well they, well they could be not famous and still cool and so I know, I know. but i mean i mean i see the list i mean for my listeners you should definitely go check out um the the cool people she's referring to i mean these are creme de la creme of the world so yeah
Well, the thing was, I, I was like, in, in the beginning, I was like, wow, I've been chosen to play with Kenny at the Blue Note and there, there's with the band and it, it was, it was uh, Chris Potter and, um, and it was Batatucci and it was um, Marcus Gilmore on the drums and wow. it was Ambrose Akamuzuri. Oh, he's... And I was like, oh, the, he chose... He, he asked me to be on that gig in the Blue Note a whole week. <laughs> and I, I was like humbled or honored or a little scared, obviously. And I was like... But then somebody said, um, you know, if if somebody is a heart surgeon they would not ask you to join in for the fun of it mm. oh you could you could you know you could f- fix this artery <laughs> mm. they would never do that that's their their, their you know that's their profession exactly. and i realized that kenny would never ask me if he would not trust um my skills my my sound mm. um so then i felt like a little more cool um or yeah chill reassured um, yes I, I trusted that yeah well I, th- I think that was very important to realize because people won't you know it's not charity the blue now it's it's just a, it's work it's a gig and Indeed. they would never say oh yeah just join just no 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 they, they wouldn't do that exactly um so yeah i i was um yeah, yeah. that's that's a very grounded approach to an opportunity that like that to realize uh, just to kind of have that perspective that clarity I mean, it just yeah. goes to show that you'd been doing the work the whole time, you know, because it's, I mean, an opportunity like that, it's not, I mean, pe- people need to be in a space where they can even handle it. Right, because you know, it, it doesn't be help to be nervous about it. Exactly. You know, and guess what? I, I entered a Blue Note and Antonio Sanchez is in the audience. Lee Konitz is in the audience. And I'm sure <laughs> there's like journalist type of people that I don't recognize, but yeah. sh- they are in the audience. <laughs> And Amazing. I'm like, oh no, they're behind me and in front of me. And and it does it help? No. So you just let it go. And by working with Kenny, it's all about you know letting go and just be in the moment because he gets me on the gig because of what I do in that moment. Mm. So you just jump. Yeah. So this is a great point to address some someone like um, uh, an issue is uh, someone like you i mean you have skills uh, i'm doing a very bad job of summarizing my uh, question um, okay you you have this really unique and powerful combination of skills um, a background in psychology the super legit background you have in music and as a singer and your connection with Kenny. Plus, uh, from what I gather, you lead the Effortless Mastering Institute, Mastery Institute, excuse me, and you're doing all the marketing for this as well. <laughs> so I'm wondering, so how do you think, because you're walking into Blue Note and you know all these heavy-duty people around, including heavy-duty journalists. So here's a question. How do you think the whole online dimension to 
music and the arts has changed that game. Are journalists right. still as powerful? I mean, do they still get to be as intimidating? Does the press even get to be as intimidating as they would have been 10 years back? Mm, I think I, I think it is less. Um, and honestly, we should not care about journalists. Yeah. Um, because they actually exist because we exist. Exactly. And it's it's sometimes... You know, there's always those people that feel they have to prove their points and they write shitty stories because they, they are like zooming in on, on whatever somebody's... They, they want to opinionize, but I exactly. think that doesn't help spreading the love for music. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It used to it's, be very fashionable like, to yeah. diss in the world of jazz. I mean, even if you read I some think of the... I if you have... If there's not something nice, you, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say anything. <laughs> Indeed. That's my opinion. But then, yeah, it's I guess it's their job, so it happens. And I don't know. Uh, it, it, I've been lucky, I guess, um, with, with journalists in general. Sometimes they don't really listen and they write things that are not correct and then I'm like oh but I and and some are great and some are like yeah they just, I don't know but yeah doing social media um it's easier to do it for somebody else <laughs> I hear you than for yourself still Indeed. um because but then also it's a social media so um by starting Kenny's Instagram obviously he's not doing that himself or mm-hmm all of those computer type of things. He's just too busy and touring. And um, I just started sharing all the videos I shot of him uh, playing. And in during the classes, I was like, yeah, I'll just share that. And then later on, we get a conversation and we go viral because he's sharing something that people love. And uh, people sent him messages. And then I... I I text him that message. Wow. You know, I make a screenshot of the Instagram and I, I show it to him and he answers. So, yeah, I want... It's always like finding the audience that... Your niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with some people, that's more easy than other people. Uh, obviously, I, I, I do work a lot with Ari Honig, the drummer that Kenny works. Yeah. Uh, with and yeah. I, I I do all the social media uh, all the online stuff for Ari is that a skill you picked up by learning by doing or is that something you trained in how did that happen I don't know uh, I'm so good with computers in... it's my secret hobby gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. don't so tell anybody I, I won't but, um, you, but your parents finally got you that secret hobby then <laughs> yeah I, I you know I'm able to build websites I, I'm good with uh, obviously because I studied at the university I can write good stories I, I wow. you know making a newsletter it's not so hard it's harder to do it for myself than for somebody else um, mm-hmm. um, because promoting yourself is the hardest thing indeed but yeah you have to get over it I think you just have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I re- recall classmates uh, 
they were like, yeah, I don't know if I should build a website now and they, because I did not graduate yet. And, <laughs> I remember <laughs> And I was like, yeah. well, if they are really your fan, they want to be part of the process. Indeed. And because I've been always, during my studies and before my studies, I, well, I needed the money to fund Berkeley. So I did a lot of fundraising and a lot of blogging uh, about my adventures <laughs> oh. going go, and studying. So I did a lot of blogging and um, it, I go in and out of it. Um, but then I was like, well, I should send a newsletter to all my people that helped me get to Berkeley and then mm -hmm. so that's how you, how you grow a certain group of people and th they might actually forget about you later on and then you might meet them later uh, it's, it's and and you know 10 years ago I think my CD well I have two albums they they sound so different than the stuff I've been doing with Kenny or with my electric. Uh, I have this, this trio mm -hmm. with a modeler synth and mm -hmm. a guitarist. Wow. And this guy brings the modeler synth where, to the gig. It's like this giant box with cables and lights. And <laughs> Is that in the Netherlands or in New York? No, it's in New York. It's, it's really underground. And, and they figure out where the clubs are and uh, you end up in weird spaces. And it's like, they call it space jazz because it's weird sounds. And my iPad apps, Loop Station's voice stuff goes into his um, box. Uh, and that creates another channel of sound as well and then there's this guitar player um, Federico Baltucci and he, he duels over it and uh, yeah the Mollerson guy is, is fantastic Armand Bernardi his name amazing yeah. um, I'm going to circle yeah. in so, so, sorry um, how, how did I come up with that I lost my point no, that's okay. But yeah, so oh right. So the the stuff I was singing ten years ago is totally different than space jazz or straight ahead stuff with Kenny or experimental things. And then then with my husband we started the chocolate music collaboration. Yeah. Uh, when we when I yeah, when we moved to New York. Um, the year after he finished in the restaurant. So. Tell us a little about that. I mean, music and chocolate. I mean, you'd think someone would have thought about it the whole time. You know, but no one did. You were the first. So how'd that happen? In this form, we're, I, I'm sh yeah, I, I think we're the first. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did not find it. So what we do is he makes desserts uh -huh. and he makes them very well. Uh, after the the year he worked in that restaurant, they, that restaurant, Eleven Madison Park, became the best restaurant of the world. Mm. Um, wow! So yeah, what's next? So somebody invited us both to this party in Soho on his rooftop. Mm -hmm. he, he was a he, he's a real estate guy, and uh, he, so he sells houses in huh. New York. And he's like, you too should be doing something on my next party and we're like yeah but we want to party too you, you know it's i'm not singing standards in the corner and teddy is not making cupcakes you know yeah. so what do we do and we figured that we just do it at the same time so he made a giant dessert 
When you say giant, how big are we talking? I'm curious. Well, it was like a big size desk. Wow. Okay. That sounds... I think. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so th that was a small one, but it was our first one. And I was sitting next to him with iPad apps and loop stations and my electronics stuff in my... And and I would just create sounds to to his movement while he was creating this painting from dessert. Mm. And it was different colors and different shapes and different flavors and textures and pastry ingredients. And then afterwards, the people were, they were watching and they, they got a spoon and they could eat it. And that was so fun that we just expanded and the biggest we did was in uh zoo heide in in germany in uh, dusseldorf you oh, might actually know yeah, it's sure. a giant supermarket and they yeah. have a yearly festival <laughs> and they are 1500 people so they asked us um the chocolate brand we by now work with yeah. uh, original beans they asked us to uh, make <laughs> world's biggest pastry painting with music wow. so uh that took a little longer than 20 30 minutes it was uh i think I it was imagine. over one hour and um people were just walking through uh, around our it was a giant's uh canvas mm -hmm. uh, with like metro tiles on it like bathroom tiles and you could serve those afterwards so it was 1500 people mm -hmm. and uh it was so fun wow and he got they got well because it was so big they got him whole pastry team to prepare the ingredients because you have to make you know the gels and the ganache and the cakes and, and the creams you have to make them at vents and during the show it needs to be the right temperature so the text uh, the texture and the fluidity um, the liquidity of the all the creams and gels is the perfect way because mm -hmm. he, he's throwing it. <laughs> wow! Um, and in, then it turns out to be to the music? edible. Like, is it in sync with the music? Yeah. Wow. Well, so I I'm just watching him, and then whatever he sound or I, the movement he makes, I create sounds. So it's a musical Beautiful. improvisation. Um, Beautiful. It's very experimental, and it. it might only make sense if you see the visual. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. Or, or so, eat the chocolate. Yeah, and, and <laughs> in, a, in a way, we make experimental music approachable because mm. um, not only, uh, yeah, well, generally everybody could like experimental music if there's chocolate involved. Mm -hmm. That's... Uh, we pr we proved that. So yeah, we made world's biggest one. We we were on Japanese television in Brooklyn. Well, they they did like a six minute documentary about us in Brooklyn with the show. We uh, did um, a theme in a museum for uh, Rembrandt. So then we were discussing how does Rembrandt sound and what did Rembrandt eat and what colors can we use or not use and wow. uh, we did a theme um, for uh, Mondrian. Uh, yeah, we did so many different shows and we work with the customer and we um, and their wishes and, and every theme is different. We presented a, a designer's table. So oh. we, th that was 
um, a Dutch brand with it. It's called Moi with uh, three O's. Yeah. And uh, they make very, very expensive furniture that's really modern, I'd mm. say. They have like, for example, they have a real uh, size horse from like plastic. And then mm. there's a lamp on the head of the horse. Wow. <laughs> And it's like super expensive, but you also need a big house to put put the lamp horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this they had a table, and we presented that table in their showroom in New York, and then we 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 worked with their um, the colors of their marketing material. We worked with their theme uh, because it, they they called it the monster table. Mm-hmm. So everything was monsters and. Uh, yeah, it's just being creative all the time. So, yeah, it's it's. I wear so many hats. Uh, people might be confused. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you say uh, that. I also do different styles of music. Um, exactly. So, but but yeah. you say that you wear so different, so many different hats. But the direction in which the arts are headed, even music, is interdisciplinary anyway. You know. I think so. Yeah, I mean, twenty years back, it was enough if you could just play an instrument then you, you know somewhere along the line you had to know how to set up your own studio and then somewhere along the line you were also doing your video and somewhere along the line you yeah. also had to know how to do some basic marketing and it just keeps going on and on and psychology is being introduced increasingly in right. curriculums uh, for music like I had to do a psychology course for my second degree even though it was a music degree cool so, so oh, the way I look at it, you've just been one of the pioneers of this movement in a way, with or without real, uh, realizing it. Uh, yeah, I sh- certainly did not realize that. It, it just happened. <laughs> yeah. I do stuff because I like it. And then we continue. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, is, is that a pattern you've noticed? And are you glad your path towards the arts was interdisciplinary from the beginning anyways? Well, now, now you're saying that, I do see a lot of... Well, in general, if you're an artist and you don't have a label or a manager, you have to do everything yourself. Right, so right. you also have to be the booker and the agent and the marketeer. You have to build your website or maybe maybe if you have money, you buy somebody to build it. Yeah. But in, yeah, we have to do everything. And then we have to go on social media and present ourselves. So we have to have a, a visual aspect of, our, of what we do. Exactly. And if you don't, then, well, still, there's a lot of jazz. In, in jazz, there's a lot of people that don't have these things. Mm-hmm. It might actually be a problem sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. But, you know, in general, they're underground, but people know how to find them. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I mean, that's also in New York. They're everywhere, you know. Like the guy who was the drummer of Thelonious Monk. <laughs> he does not have a website. I can imagine. Of course he does not. <laughs> yeah. But he was hanging in Fat Cat. You know, it just happens. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we we do have... But, but if we're younger and we didn't have that... Also, people don't go on tour. Like, Kenny would go on tour for four weeks in a row. Every night, the same songs. Wow. We don't get that opportunity, we, yeah. we as younger musicians. Exactly. How, how can we do that? So, we, we have... It's a, different, it's a different game now, I guess. Indeed. Indeed. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you have to find your own thing and, and, and be happy with that and be comfortable with for example, when Corona started, everybody was live streaming concerts. Mm-hmm. And I I'm I tried, I think I did one, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it's just not my thing so much. And I love bands and working together and creating in the moment and indeed. Yeah. I just figured I'll, I'll do something else in a different way. So eventually I started my new album recording project, which is bizarre as well. But Yeah, we want to talk about that, by the way, before we taper off. I mean, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I can relate, by the way, um, to the whole streaming concert thing. I, mm. I, I didn't feel it either. I tried it out. I tried a couple... And I'm like, nah. Surprisingly enough, I, I love to teach online. I actually find online yeah. teaching in a lot of ways even more, in certain aspects, more effective than in person. Uh, I agree. Uh, controversial statement. Uh, I work for a very conservative music institute who uh, have been trying everything they can to get back to, you know, live classes. Um, but uh, in my students showed improvements they hadn't shown in years once we went online. But uh, the concerts just didn't work for me at all. It felt so mm-hmm. weird. It's like there was no energy like uh, in there, if, right. like playing for a wall. It just didn't work for me. But I have friends who uh, had, a, had a ball. And I remember how the whole industry was going like, okay, everything's changed. And concerts are going to go online like long term and so on but I was like yeah I don't know not feeling this yeah some people love it but I I, I like the vibe of people watching me and I I love to see them <laughs> exactly and 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 there's this this thing in the air that you can feel and they respond exactly. or they don't respond or exactly. th- that's about the connection that's about about communication because Completely. music is a way of communication absolutely i totally feel, especially i think you hit the nail on the head when you use the word air like literally physically because the sound exactly. is traveling through the air right so you're sharing uh-huh. the sound at the same time yeah. in real time and i think that has like a deeper physical um yeah uh, implications than we realize sometimes. It's just not the kind of thing that gets transported the same way online. Mm-hmm. And, um, let's talk about before we taper off. You know, we're almost at 90 minutes now, and I want to respect your time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, with most of my guests, uh, it's, it's hard keeping track of time. This case is uh, no exception to that. Uh, I could go on for hours, but yeah, let's talk about your um, album, Women in Chocolate. I mean, how cool is this? Tell us more. I know. Well, it started with, we, we've been working with this chocolate company, Original Beans, and they are amazing. They're one of the few companies that does not only pay the farmer well, but they also, they pay them a stable price awesome. that is generally 220% of the world's cacao market price. So cool. So it's not, it's, it's better than fair trade. Mm. This is a living wage. And therefore, these farmers can finally grow and send their kids to school and, and then build a business. Like, awesome. <laughs> and and, and then, so, so, so they have all these projects all over the world. And they, they've been around. They're, they're actually a Dutch uh, company, Dutch-based. Mm-hmm. Um, the CEO is German, uh, Philip Kaufmann. Nice. And his 
passion for chocolate was actually born because he loves trees. Wow. His family was, um, or his grandfather was guardian of the uh, Black Forest. No way. And uh, I think his father worked for the WWF, uh, yeah, the, the yeah. worldwide, the, the worldwide, um, uh, uh, world what WWF anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. WWF. Uh, yeah. So th- yeah, there's a lot of nature in his upbringing. Beautiful. Then he he worked for the UN with the uh, for the, on reforestation programs. Mm-hmm. And after a while, he was. He found that those pro- programs are for a certain amount of years, and then the pro- project stops, and then it's up to up to the wind what happens with it. Mm-hmm. So he he didn't find it as sustainable uh, as he wanted it, mm-hmm. because he wants to heal the world with planting trees. Wow. So then he found out that a cocoa tree. In order to grow well, needs two shade trees. Huh. So for uh, what he found then is all these tribes all over the world, and he gave them their. He he was arranging with the uh, country or the landowners to to have these native tribes back on their land, or sometimes they already had their land, but mm-hmm. m- most of the time there's issues with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. He works with these, these tribes that have cacao in the wild. And um, they add a tree nursery to it. And they just arranged it so that Original Beans is their regular chocolate buyer. Nice. And one of these projects is in Virungenside Park, Congo, where there's uh, all this militia and, and rebellion and because there's gold and uh, metals in the ground and people just kill for it. Okay. So these, these women are left alone because their hus- their, their, the men are gone. Or So what they did is they, they taught these 400 women to teach, uh, to, to read and write and to how to produce chocolate mm-hmm. and, and have a tree nursery and... By now there's 1,500 and they own that chocolate uh, farm and they they are, I think they're even doing honey and, and different type of products as well by now after 10 years or so. Huh. And I, I, yeah, they, they are uh, empowering these women. Um, so a couple of years, we, we wanted to go and see the project. But then Congo, they say, oh, it's not safe. Because there's now a rebellion with militia, and then the year after was Ebola. <laughs> we cannot go. There, you cannot go. There's Ebola, right. and now just Corona. We can still not go. Um, so, what I wanted to do is is go there and and also record some samples and sounds and mm-hmm. see what I could do, and then mix it into a project. Mm-hmm. Um, but since that was not possible, the CEO of the company was like, oh, well, there's this lady from the BBC and she um, she made a documentary and, and you could maybe get those sounds from her. So I was like, oh, okay, well, we could, we could see. And then I thought, well, how about I make an album with a bar of chocolate and we support those women 
and then we also for because for every bar they sell they plant a tree wow so and nobody buys albums because every all, all everything is free on iTunes and Spotify. And right. So, right. how can I make people buy an album? Because we want to go back to a tangible experience. Mm-hmm. That's what we have been doing with the, the Choco Jazz shows. It's something you have to be at. You cannot just watch a movie because then you cannot eat it. You cannot listen because then you cannot see it. So it's it's the whole that you had to be there. Uh, that's so, we so created, intelligent. Yeah, it, it's it's. I think that's what music is. It should be an experience, and um, it used to be like you buy an album and there's this little booklet and it's an experience exactly, you put right? it into your player and, it, and even the records you know I have a bunch of records I like that mm-hmm. and it's like and, and then it's it's wonky and it's even more fun I know it's like, right? man I miss those times yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh I have to just like adjust it yeah. and then yeah so uh, back to the tangible experience so why not put chocolate to the CD because we people know me I've been with the chocolate everybody makes fun of it but hey they love it so why Who not makes fun so, of chocolate and um, not not me well yeah I, I, I don't know <laughs> it makes I don't, it made total sense to me I was which is why I was like how, yeah. how did no one come up with this before but I mean well and yeah. we chose this type of chocolate because it's very decadent to throw with eat food where People on the other side of the world are starving, Indeed. so it better have has has like, you know, it better be good. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so yeah, we love this brand, and and we wanted to do something with that to also create more awareness. And uh, yeah, so my album with chocolate, and then supporting those women planting trees. Um, so what should be on the album? Obviously also women so i started with a small girl band but then it was too like i was like no too easy uh-huh. and and girl bands is also very cliche in a way it's like a super jazz female band is a little mm. i don't know so i i, I didn't want to fall in that box um, right, right so then i had 30 of them because i went through my mind who who else do i know women that are great players mm. and then and then I, I went through my facebook and was like oh wow this person that person oh wow yeah cool so then i had this list of 100 people on my list and they're from over 40 countries and uh i thought well let's make a collage and let's see where it goes. And so on the album will be uh, nine songs that I wrote. And so far it will be recorded throughout the summer because everybody will send their parts to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously a lot of logistics, but um, I have uh, different arrangers. Um, I have this How many? girl from uh, Cuba that makes a big band's arrangement of my song. And then there is this girl from uh, uh, Sweden. She makes a close harmony arrangement of my song. And I uh, asked this um, 
go from Mexico to make a string arrangement. So there will be all different arrangements made from my songs. And then there will be a bunch of women recording on those songs. And uh, in between those conceptual songs with lyrics will be soundscapes. So more uh, weird. Yeah. Maybe not weird. But yeah. I'm all for weird. I I love (laughs) weird. Just FYI. Uh, But... um, how many arrangers do you have on in total on the album? Um, so far, we have four, but there will be more because I, I want to outsource. We we need to do it in phases. Beautiful. Um, so so far, I have already gotten back four arrangements, which is mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. And now we can send it out to the performers. Beautiful. Uh, and then in August, there will be mixing and mastering. Uh, you have this. Uh, yeah, I have a great team of women. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're going to have links um, to your uh, to your work on the episode notes. So for my listeners, please do make sure um, you go out and get, check that out. Is, is the campaign over already or is it still on? It's still on, actually. Yeah, we I did an Indiegogo crowdfunding right. before the project started yeah. because I thought I'd rather focus on the music and just have that out of the way. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and then because we reached the goal, it will be still online. So people can still uh, buy an album and chocolate and uh, maybe even more chocolate. It's all on that website. Um, yeah, until I think in October it will go through a, a label and then you can buy the album t- either through my website or th- there's some logistics involved, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an exciting project. I, I couldn't be happier with it. It's it's so creative. Um, but it's also about, I mean, already 150 people chipped in in such a short period. And they bought 290 bars of chocolate wow. altogether. Uh, and <laughs> so we already planted mm-hmm. almost 300 trees. That is so awesome. And uh, so it's already a success. And uh, there will be many more because there will be a marketing campaign for, for when it's finally out. Because it's not available yet, it will be sent out to those people that pre-ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everybody's so excited. Yeah. That must be such an amazing feeling to bring all these worlds together and actually see tangible goodness happening as a result of your work. I think my one of my powers is is having everybody do what they are good at. Mm-hmm. So this this Cuban, uh, her name is Zaili, um, and she she wrote a, a bolero, mm-hmm. a really Cuban super slow big band bolero. Yeah. I could not have come up with that for my song that I wrote. <laughs> I could, couldn't have imagined. So I listened to it. It was so beautiful. And uh, now we still we still have to officially record it, but I I heard the the, I mean the MIDI track arrangement of it. I I was like wow, mm. so out. <laughs> yeah. And then Linnea from Sweden, she sent me uh, two days ago. She sent me this arrangement for voice, a uh, bunch of voices, and she pre-recorded with her own voice so I could hear it. Wow. And then we can send out the scores to everybody later on, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the it's so different than the bolero. So this album is going to be really 
all over the place. But the, I think the, the the main factor is that everybody is connected uh, with each other. Indeed. Yeah, because I don't want, I don't like that whole feminine like oh, I, I just rather show how professional, how many talented women are out there. I think that that's the main. Yeah. Let's ju- let's just do something fun and make people happy and you know yeah. that, that's yeah save the world <laughs> meaningful yeah yeah what's the best place to find you generally and support your work apart from the indigo indiegogo link which we'll also include yeah you can just go to the website uh, vivianarts.com excellent yeah oh put updates on there as well excellent or instagram i i do a lot of instagram i like instagram yeah you do yeah n- not really nobody likes instagram <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I have a love-hate relationship with it i i used to instagram yeah. before it became like a standard thing for musicians uh-huh. and at the time i found it to be a, a refreshing alternative to facebook which was all about you know long right. status updates so i like the possibilities of just posting a picture and let it speak for itself but at this point yeah. it's just the new facebook um so yeah uh, well yeah i post a lot of random stuff like yeah but yours birds and, and puppies and yeah but i boats love your posts because it's it's just so real you, you know, you've kept it real it's uh, which which is yeah. really refreshing but this whole instagram yeah. influencer movement that's become such a standard thing is uh, something i yeah. struggle with it's just doesn't sit with me very well not to judge i'm just saying it's just yeah um, yeah it's it's whatever f- works for you and absolutely. i think because it's a social media it should have a social component that yeah, means that it it's like <laughs> two way it's yeah. a two-way street indeed yeah. engagement i guess at the end of the day the trick is to figure out how to be yourself you know even in the, in that virtual yeah. realm to make sure you're not uh, or we don't get lost in the crowd and you know to figure out a way to be ourselves yeah well i think you're doing a great job at that Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, I have no clue what I'm doing at this point, so it feels good. Which to is exactly <laughs> the right way to go. Thank just, you. I sincerely appreciate that. Yeah, just roll with it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, uh, and as you've hopefully know, realized by now, I'm a fan of your work. I'm in deep admiration for the work oh, you're doing. thank you. No, absolutely. My apologies if I hadn't made that clear. Uh, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you on and uh, thank you it's my pleasure thank you this was such a nice conversation it's important to be reminded of your own journey because you forget you get sometimes you you get just so much clutter of like emails you need to send and stuff you need to do and then you wake up and you're like oh what day is it and yeah just thinking about the journey will always help indeed of, of moving on completely agree the hustle can be mm. uh, blinding at times very disorienting yeah, yeah. but then you, you know more about this than i do with your background in psychology <laughs> yeah oh it's uh it's rough to be your own psychologist so i don't <laughs> i know i know i actually do have a background in psychotherapy as well 
but it's not a degree. It's just okay. a, uh, like a mini diploma course I did on my own self-study. It's nothing uh, comparable to the kind of qualification someone like you have. But yeah, I, I, I agree. It's uh, it's one of the easiest traps to fall for. You know, you if you try and mm. analyze yourself too much, that's a cannibalistic cycle, right? We want to get support yeah. instead. Yeah. Well, like Kenny would say, just focus on your breath and you're there. Amen to that. On that very positive note, I'm going to just FYI stop the recording. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.